So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So um, let me just kind of give a little review. Uh, Corinth is a really tough city, and it's a city of a lot of debauchery. And they, they just think it's normal. So it's the last place in the world that you would want to plant a church. But Paul plants a church there, but now, of course, he's got problems with the people who are there. They're trying to bring the Corinthian culture into the church and make that the dominant theme rather than Christ, which is a problem and a challenge. And the biggest motivation for Paul writing this letter is apparently these factions that are developing because of people are following Paul or Stephanus or uh, Peter. Uh, some, some actually do like Christ, you know, but there are these factions. But the factions are just one manifestation of some bigger problems in the church. And that bigger problem is idol worship and a misunderstanding of what the gospel, the gospel is. And so later in the book of 1 Corinthians, we get into all of these other issues. We get into issues about uh, should you sue a fellow church member? Uh, what does that look like? What about marriage? Paul has a whole chapter on marriage and singleness. I would argue it's about singleness as well. Um, he, he goes into all these other things. But the first part of this book, he's really zeroing in on these factions. And you think he's done with the factions, and then he goes back into the factions issue. And then you think he's done, and then he go, brings it right back. So really, even through the first six chapters, this factions issue is sort of in the background or it's in the foreground of what we're looking at. And we're going to see tonight in chapter 3, depending on how far we get, I think we'll finish chapter 3. The question is, will we get into chapter 4? But he's going to come back to the factions uh, again in chapter 3 uh, tonight. So uh, uh, Paul starts... 1 Corinthians with his greeting and his prayer. Then he talks about divisions and factions based on the leaders on which the leaders that people in the church prefer. And then he took us through, and this is what we looked at last week, the magnificent treatise on the wisdom of God and the foolishness of humans. And so now he comes to this. Let me read the first nine verses of chapter 3. And remember, this is in the context of the foolishness and wisdom. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, or another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. 
So he takes us through all of this uh, factions and then uh, the wisdom of God and the foolishness of man stuff. And now here, he flat out tells the Corinthians that they, they're Christians, they are in Christ. It's a little confusing sometimes because sometimes you think that the way Paul is writing, he's saying, you're not even saved. He's, he's never, he never says that and he's not saying that. He keeps coming back to the fact that they are saved, but he wants them to know you're living in the world still. You're living in the flesh. You're losing the battle of the flesh. So he's telling them, these people in the church, in a faith community, you're behaving like the world, you're behaving like fools, and you're behaving like little children. You don't have the wisdom of God. He says, I could not address you as spiritual people, but I have to address you as people of the flesh. That is quite a statement, I would argue. And, and it, should be, it should be something that will, that will give the leaders in Corinth and the rest of the people in Corinth, the church there, pause. And then he does take them back to the problems of factions, divisions, and popularity contests. This is really good work by Paul, by the Holy Spirit. Paul's a great rhetorician. The Holy Spirit is leading him. you got the combination of somebody who's really bright and intelligent, who also understands humility, being filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's why he's got 13 letters in the New Testament. Okay? And so after saying in verse 1 that they are behaving like the world and not followers of Jesus, he continues to chastise them. Now, he's chastising them gently. He could go way harder than he's going. And some of this does sound pretty tough, but he could go a lot harder than he is. He's trying to do this as gently as possible. He's trying to do it in the spirit. But he goes right at them. In verse 2, he tells them that he did the right thing. He spoon-fed them the truths that they needed. But he says, you're not doing your part. They are Corinthians stuck in the milieu of their Corinthian culture. And, and, and they do know Jesus, but they really only want Jesus as an addendum to their life in Corinth. You get what I'm saying? See, one of the things I like about redemption, we have these seven value statements. And one of them we repeat every Sunday. All of life is all for Jesus. Okay. Uh, that is clearly a statement that's antithetical to anyone who thinks that Jesus is just going to be this little add-on that's going to make my life a little better. But a lot of people do treat the gospel and treat Jesus in such a matter. It's in such a manner. It, it, we're just going to we're going to keep doing what we're doing, but we kind of have this Jesus in our hip pocket, and we wheel him out when we need him, but you know only when we need him. We're really not prioritizing it. So in Corinth. They, they're still having these popularity contests. They're really, they're really invested in their preferences rather than uh, gospel doctrine. They're still, we'll find out, they're really invested in their sexual deviations. And the biggest problem is they have a bunch of false gods. And they're, they're, it's not just that they elevate false gods, it's that they're making false gods. They're making idols. They're, they're deeply entrenched in, in idolatry. And so that's what's really happening here. Paul's really giving it to them, measured, yes, but he's getting his point across. And he is using this faction issue as, as sort of what's known as synecdoche for the bigger issues of immaturity and faith. So he's using this issue to illustrate the bigger problem. They are immature in their faith. They're not taking their faith seriously enough. So let's go with the faction thing for now, but believe me, he's going to get to a lot of other stuff 
as well. Let me reread from the second part of verse 2 through 4. Uh, he writes, And even now you are not ready for the solid food, for you are still of the flesh. For while, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Paulus, are you not being merely human? That's what humans do. That's what human beings do. So their spats about Paul and Cephas and Apollos, uh, are, are, they're not a slight faux pas. They're not a small interruption in an otherwise beautifully sanctified life in Christ. But rather, this spat is, is just one symptom of their desire to continue to let their flesh dominate their life. Um, do y'all remember, do any of you remember David Massey? Yeah. 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 He, he and I used to, by the way, I think he's coming in, um, tentatively, he's coming in the fall, and I'm going to do a little dueling preaching with, with okay. I'm, I'm going to do like an all-of-life interview, because he's, you know, chaplain for the Air Force now, right. do a little all-of-life interview with, with him, and then we'll do a little dueling preaching together, I think that would be really fun. Um, <laughs> but anyway, one of the, he and I used to go round and round about this, um, he, he said that, he said that he was specifically trained in seminary that when you teach or preach, you go to one text and you stay in that text, you never go anywhere else. And I'm like, no, you got to let scripture interpret scripture. And so we'd go back and forth, back and forth on all this stuff. Anyway, so I'm going to Romans 7 now. So I'm going to let scripture interpret scripture for a minute. And, and if Massey's li- listening on the podcast, he's just going to fast forward. right? Now. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> um, Romans chapter 7, uh, starting at verse 13. This is, a, I think, a fairly famous uh, passage where Paul, the apostle, writes, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and, th- and through the condemnation might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Anybody here identify with that? Okay. Now, if I do, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me, or the flesh. You, you, you could say, or the flesh, or the, the um, where am I? The sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the key right there. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to Christ. He's the one who can deliver me. So 
in a sense, Paul is trying to tell the Corinthians the same thing. You're of the flesh. You're losing this battle between the spirit and the flesh. And the reason is because you're not treating Christ and the gospel as a priority. You're treating it as an addendum to your life in Corinth. It's just kind of the latest thing, the newest thing. Now, you've confessed Christ. We know that. So you are in Christ. But you need to start following. You need to start digging a little bit uh, deeper. By the way, uh, anybody ever read the, um, uh, the little novella by uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, I think it is? Uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Anybody ever read that? Okay. Um, that little story is actually his allegory of Romans 7, the second half of Romans 7. In, in the novel, he actually quotes from Romans 7, but it's kind of his allegory, you know. And I hesitate to say this, especially since I'm being recorded, but there's a modern-day allegory of Romans 7 as well. And it was on, I think it was a series uh, that was on Showtime. It had eight seasons. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Come on, you can say it. I won't tell anybody who it is. What? Uh, they, just, they just revived the series after 10 years last fall for one last season. Dexter, that's exactly right. Dexter is also an extended allegory of Romans 7. And in fact, the cousin of one of our members here was on the writing team for Dexter, who grew up in church and knows biblical theology really well. And, and if, if you know the story of Dexter, you know that um, after the first season, they quit following the novels. And they started writing their own Dexter stories. And every single season was this existential wrestling of Dexter with what is truth and how do I get fulfilled and why isn't my moral code working? And what do I do with what? The dark passenger. The dark passenger, that's, that's you know, Jekyll and Hyde, that's Romans 7. You see, there's nothing original in Hollywood, y'all. They're all just cheap knockoffs of the biblical story. I'm telling you. And that's why I watch these horrible shows for you, so that you don't have to. Okay? We fast forwarded a lot. Anyway, the problem in Corinth is they're not submitting to Christ, and flesh is winning every single battle. Paul's trying to get that across to them. So Paul continues. He, he says, you're making humans into your gods. That's a really foolish thing to do. Now, why is that a foolish thing to do, to make humans into false gods? They're fallible. They're going to disappoint you. Every time you place your faith in somebody else and they disappoint you, you're devastated. And, and it's because you elevated them to a position that they could never fulfill in your life. That's why, it's, that's why one of the things that I do in premarital, very early in premarital, is I have a conversation with a couple about idols and make sure you don't make your spouse or your future spouse an idol or a false god in your life because they're going to disappoint you. Those of you who are married can say, they're going to disappoint you. Okay? Christ is the only one who can be God in your life. Your spouse is your spouse. And they can meet some of your needs, but they're not going to meet them all. And you need to let your spouse off the hook in that regard as well. Um, anyway, Paul is saying you're making it. You know what Tom Schrader, our founding pastor, you know what he used to say about false gods, right? You've heard this, some of you, anyway. False gods never fail to fail. Okay? Um, 
Piper says that the reason false gods are so popular is because they work at first. They always work at first, but eventually they're going to let you down. Eventually they're going to, you're going to see that they're perishing. Okay. So Paul says you're, you're making humans into gods. It's very foolish. And then uh, verses 5 through 9, let me reread that again. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So you read this paragraph, you ask some questions that I hope are rhetorical, but who does Paul say is in charge of everything? Not a trick question, okay? This is like Sunday school. No matter what the question is, the answer is God or Jesus, okay? Okay, what animal is furry and bushy and collects nuts and saves them for later? Sounds like a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus because it's Sunday morning Sunday school, okay? All right? So who's in charge? God. Who saves? God. Who causes growth? God. Who is God? God is God. God is sovereign. None of these other, none of these others can measure up. Now, uh, I find it interesting. Many who read and study, uh, especially this part of 1 Corinthians, uh, they consider this simply an academic exercise, what we're doing right now. You know, they, they look at this and they go, oh, those Corinthians, they were so silly. What idiots. We would never do anything like that. Literally, you hear stuff like this, Okay. There is not one thing in this letter that we and every other church in this nation doesn't deal with at one time or another. You need to understand that. It's constant battle. This letter is as relevant today as it was uh, then. Okay? We just don't like to admit it. We've we, we got to keep the main thing the main thing. We've got to keep the focus on Christ. We have to set aside our preferences. Now, preferences are not necessarily bad. But when they start causing divisions and arguments and become false gods, they are bad. Um, as pastors, we occasionally have this conversation about people who try to doctrinize their preferences. Do you know what I mean by that? Okay, they have a preference, something in the church that they want that has nothing to do with the church or the gospel or the Bible, but they really want it. You know, because we're consumers, and so what they'll do is they'll go and find a verse that they can go here. See. Okay, now they've doctrinized their preference, and then, and then we have to practice facial management techniques and all that stuff. So, yeah. We've got to remember that God is God. By the way, uh, we've got to keep the main thing the main thing. If, if you're not aware of him, um, Alistair Begg is the guy who coined that phrase, I think. If you, if you don't know who Alistair Begg is, he is maybe the premier preacher uh, in the, my opinion, premier preacher in the United States today, and only because Tom passed away. Is he the premier preacher? Okay. So God is God. Now we have our part. We are the workers. We are part of the field, and we participate in the harvest. We are the building. God uses us. Okay. Uh, my salvation story could be told from a couple of different perspectives. You could say. If I had never met Jackie, I never would have come to Christ. I don't know if that's exactly right, but I can say for sure 
God in his sovereignty and in his grace used Jackie to bring me to Christ. There's a difference there. You see that? Okay. So we are the building, but God gives the growth. God is in charge of the results and God is sovereign. So next six verses, 10 through 15. So according to the grace God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it. That's the day of judgment. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. See, there's Paul saying again, you're saved. It's just that your reward in heaven is going to be a little different. Now, I know some of you are going to, all right, I want to talk about those rewards in heaven. Talk to me about that. Tell me about that. I want to hear about that. What's the, what's the level? Is it, is it like a multi-marketing thing, scheme, where you, know, you have all these different, well, how does it work? I have no idea. I've read Revelation several times looking for that, okay? Because I'm interested too. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you don't get a studio apartment in the New Jerusalem. Maybe you get a two-bedroom with an office. I don't know, okay? <laughs> I have no idea, all right? Um, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire, okay? So, you know, there are many out there who, who love to take someone else's foundation and exploit it for their own sake. And, and that's, that's probably okay in, in some context in the marketplace, but that becomes a problem in the church. And there's a lot of people that would like to do that in the church, unfortunately. Um, again, I have all kinds of stories. And, and when people want to do that, it's because they have a misunderstanding of what the foundation really is. Okay. The foundation is Jesus, and the foundation is Jesus's. And those he calls build that foundation for the glory of God and for the good of those who would be saved and be a part of that faith community. And so uh, I, I am really thankful, and in, in a kind of a humble, worldly sense, reverentially, reverential to Tom Schrader and Justin Anderson, who are the founding pastors of Redemption Church. Tom founded East Valley Bible Church, Redemption Gilbert. Justin founded uh, Praxis Tempe and then Praxis Arcadia, which is Redemption Tempe and Arcadia. I'm very thankful to them. These two men were called by God to plant churches. Both of them planted their churches. And the foundation for both of them was Jesus. And Jesus used them for his foundation. And so now people like myself and Luke, Simmons, and others, we have the privilege and the, and the responsibility to honor that foundation. Both, both that it is Jesus' foundation first and foremost, and that Tom and Justin sacrificed in order to be used by God to build that foundation. I knew Tom when he was planting East Valley Bible Church. Um, and, and I know... Uh, what he gave up to be able to plant that church and it was it was a great work 
Uh, I didn't know Justin when he planted uh, Praxis, but I've heard the stories, and, and let me tell you something. That was, um, that was a work of God, but there was a lot of determination on Justin's part as well. It was, it was really something. And so myself and others are blessed and charged with that accountability. I've said this many times before. Um, the lead pastor should cast the vision. I get that. But what we, what we should also do, I believe, any leader should do this, I believe, um, and it never gets talked about, is also preserve the legacy and the history of the organization, the church, or whatever it is, and, and be able to honor that as well. And I never would want to abuse that privilege or responsibility. But then Paul talks about, in the same sentence, he talks about gold, silver, and precious stones, and then wood, hay, and straw. What is that? And what's the fire? What is all that? Uh, it's actually pretty simple, and, and yet it's usually a topic that people get squirmy about, and that is, it's, he's talking about God's judgment. Um, if you notice in the text... The translators here, I think rightfully, uh, capitalized the word day, which means it's a special day, which means it's a reference to the day of judgment. Okay? So he's talking about judgment here, and also anytime you're talking about fire, you're talking about judgment as well. So some Christians build on the foundation that Jesus is, and Jesus is laid through his faithful workers. And they build in a way that continues the work of the kingdom of God and honors Christ and the predecessors. And that would be the gold, the silver, and the precious stones. But others will use the foundation of Jesus and somebody else's work in Christ. They'll come in later and they will try to build their own kingdom and their own establishments. And that is what Paul is referring to as the wood, hay, and straw. And he's very concerned right now that that's what's happening in Corinth. That these guys are looking at Apollos and Peter and him as the human builders of this church. And they like what's going on in the church, but they see it as a human endeavor because they're exalting these human beings. And so they are going to try to build on a human foundation to exalt themselves now and build their own kingdoms. He's very worried that that's what's going to happen in this church at this point. Okay. And so those who build on their, build their own kingdoms, kingdoms and establishments, that's the wood, hay, and the straw. And all of that stuff, that work, when facing the fires of judgment, will burn. And the work that is metaphorically the gold, silver, and stones, that work will be honored and rewarded because it will stand the test. It will withstand the test. And yes, Paul is saying that even those Christians whose work is wood, hay, and straw, they will be saved. They're still believers, but unfortunately, for whatever reason, they've lost sight of their purpose in the church. It happens all the time. And remember, James tells us in his uh, little letter that teachers and pastors are going to be held to a higher standard in this regard. So it's not like we haven't been cautioned and informed. There's no way I'm going to be able to stand in front of whoever I'm going to stand in front of someday and go, well, I didn't know. Okay? We, we, we signed the document that said, yes, I've, I've read the agreement. Okay? So there is accountability in the church, and it's not just from the elders. There's accountability beyond the elders, and the elders are held accountable as well. 
All right. That's all I have to say about that. Let's get back to Paul, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Oh. Um, Paul uses verses 10 through 15 to set up this incredible declaration that he has in these two verses, 16 and 17. By the way, a little diversion. I think it's just interesting how Paul writes. He's brilliant. He's, I mentioned in the introduction to this that Paul is well-versed in the law, the Old Testament. He had the whole Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, memorized. But he's also well-versed in uh, Greek philosophy because he grew up in a, in a Greek city. Uh, Tarsus, And so he also had all of this education from the, the ancient Greek philosophers. So he knows how to think in terms of both the law and Greek philosophy. And so when he writes, you can see how adept he is at, at working with the law and bringing that out in his letters and then moving into a, a, a rhetorical construct that, that really looks a lot like Aristotle and Plato and all that. Not that he would agree with them necessarily, but he knows how to write like that. You know, he's brilliant. Okay, so what, what is Paul saying in these two verses? One of the things that Corinth was known for was its magnificent buildings and its magnificent pagan temples. We talked about that the first night. They had these unbelievable pagan temples. We would look at them and call them some sort of a church or whatever, but they were temples and, and they, they, they would... Uh, they, they existed so that you could go and worship and sacrifice to all the different gods. And they had a pantheon of gods. The god of agriculture, the god of the harvest, the god of the sun, the god of the moon, god of stars, god of sex, god of love, all these different, god of your mother-in-law, all these different, and you'd offer a lot of sacrifices. Anyway, you'd have all these different gods. Okay. So what Paul is reminding his readers of is that the true temple is actually God's people. It's not a church. It's not a building. And so what we have here is a little bit of a foreshadowing of the new Jerusalem, even. So if you read through Revelation, what you begin to understand is that in the new Jerusalem, there will be no temple or church because the people are the temple. So there's not, going to be, there's not going to be a building like this anywhere where people go, we are the church. It is the church. And the New Jerusalem is the temple of God. And so as God's people, Paul reminds them that God will protect us and he will also provide for us. But this is what can get lost in the translation here is the fact that he's talking about people in the church harming others in the church. That's what he's talking about here. So he's writing to them and he's saying, listen, you are the people of God, but you have some among you who are going to harm the people of God. And, that, and God's not going to be pleased with that. Because you're too invested in Corinthian culture. You're too worried about uh, worldly stuff, false gods, uh, human issues. And then Paul again circles back to both the wisdom and the foolish discussion and the Paul, Apollos, and Cephas issue, verses 18 through 23. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become, may become wise. 
For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or the present or the future, all are used, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. So, so he's reminding them again, you guys are screwing up, but you're still in Christ. You're still saved. You need to be the church. I'm rebuking you. I'm correcting you. But I'm trying to do it in a way that restores you. So I want you to think about this. Paul has written for three chapters now, and he's going to continue into chapter four as well. He's, he's written about this one issue for three chapters. This is a lot. He's really hanging on this issue. And so if we don't think this is important, we need to think again. And verse 18 is one of my favorites. The only way that we can gain the wisdom of God and live our life by it and submit our will to it and manifest God's wisdom in all we do, the only way we can do that is to become fools in the eyes of the world and in our culture. The world and culture looks at us and thinks we're fools. Anybody heard of um, manifesting? Y you all have? It's very trendy right now, yeah. Okay, so I had a lecture on manifesting uh, recently, last week as a matter of fact. And so what I heard was um, that if you, what is it, like three, six, and nine, and if you repeat these phrases six times, it's going to happen. Uh, universe, deposit $5,000 into my bank account. Universe, deposit $5,000 into my bank account. Universe, deposit $5,000 into my bank account. It will happen. And I'm sitting there going, and I'm an idiot because I believe in Jesus? I, I don't get it. Honestly, I don't get it. You know? Have, have, have any of you watched this new show on Netflix called um, Inventing Anna? Has anybody watched it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know the character uh, Casey, the transgender uh, uh, workout guru? You know her, him? Okay. So she's lecturing Rachel. We just watched this. Uh, she's lecturing Rachel about how you have to sit in your power. You have to love yourself first. You have to be who you're going to be. And you own this space. And I'm sitting there going, really? <laughs> Her? <laughs> Her. Okay. It's just, I don't get it. That's okay. That's believable. But like you said, it's very trendy. Very, very trendy. Okay. So, anyway. What? You do. You. Oh, yeah. Who else would you do? Yeah. I'm going to do Barry. Get my, bi get my bike on. <laughs> All right. So, if you're going to be wise in God's economy, just understand, the world's going to think you're a fool. They just are. Okay. Tom used to talk about this. Again, Tom Schrader. I, I can hardly go very long without talking about Schrader. Anyway, uh, he used to talk about this all the time. He, he used to say how the world views Christian men as Harvey Milk Toasts. 
So some of you are like, what in the wide world of sports is a Harvey Milk Toast? But Barry knows what a Harvey Milk Toast is. <laughs> yeah. So that's an old saying, okay, Harvey Milk Toast, okay? So those of you that don't know what a Harvey Milk Toast is, I, I looked it up, I wanted to get the definition correct. So I looked it up on the World Wide Interweb, that thing on all of our computers that holds all truth and wisdom that you can count on for every, everything, okay? So here, here's the definition. A Harvey Milk Toast is a man who is so mild-mannered and so pathetically clueless about it that he gives you the heebie-jeebies. That's a Harvey Milk Toast. There's heebie-jeebies is another ancient, right? It's like cooties, <laughs> you know, okay? So that's what the world thinks of Christian men. Yet Tom also reminds us that true courage is to stand for your faith and for Christ in the midst of a world that's mocking you and persecuting you for your faith. That's real courage. Listen, it doesn't take any courage to swim with the current of culture. It takes no courage whatsoever to do that. Okay? Christians, I believe, are actually strong. They're just strong in a, world, in a way that the world is never really going to understand. And remember, one of the reasons Paul is writing so much about the folly of worldly wisdom is that Corinth is known for their arrogance about how wise and smart they, they think they are. If you were a Corinthian... You had two things going for you as a Corinthian. Everybody else thought that you were a loser, but if you if but but if but you thought you were really wise and smart. Kind of like a New Yorker. <laughs> you said it, not me. <laughs> okay, yeah. Paul is trying to help them to see their ignorance in the midst uh, in the midst of their arrogance, and to get them to submit to God's wisdom. And then he quotes from the Old Testament to them. So he quotes from Psalm 94 and from Job. I want to read you this passage from Job chapter 5 that he actually quotes from. It's really good. So let's see, Job is in the Old Testament. Okay. It's actually Job 5, 8 through 16. Let me read it for you. Job says, As for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause. Because God does great things and, and is unsearchable. The marvelous things that he does are without number. He gives rain on the earth and he sends waters on the field. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. Like I said, Paul really knows uh, the Hebrew Bible. And ever since his Damascus Road experience, he he tends to only understand the Hebrew Bible through the lens of the gospel now, and what God is finishing in Christ. Okay, And in verses 21 through 23, his argument, I think, is really simple. All these things you covet and desire and want, they are yours if you are in Christ and you put Christ first. Now, now what does that mean? So... Uh, pursuing Christ is a methodology to get everything I want anyway? Is that what he's saying? No, that's not what he's saying. 
Okay, we've talked about this many, many times. So, um, C.S. Lewis, uh, in it was either Mere Christianity or The Four Loves, he wrote this. He said, if you chase after the things of this world, you're going to miss the things of this world, and you're going to miss God. But if you chase after God, you'll get the things of the world thrown in. Kind of as a bonus. Okay? And I always thought that he was really just sort of paraphrasing uh, what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus said, uh, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added unto you. And he's not saying it as a methodology. He's, he's saying, listen, if you get your priorities straight, you'll begin to understand what really is important and what isn't important, what you can live without, and what, and you'll be able to, as Tom used to say, you'll be able to put a lid on your dreams, you know? And you'll be able to understand reality better, and you'll be content. Not, you're not going to lack ambition. Who writes more about contentment in the New Testament than anybody? Paul. Who was the most ambitious person to ever live? I would argue it was Paul. Paul did not see a disconnect between ambition and contentment. What Paul was saying was, look, you got to go out and do what you're called to do and do it with everything that you got and do it with excellence and work hard and sacrifice and give everything for it. But at the end of the day, you got to be able to sit back and say, I'm good with where I am. I'm good with who I am. I'm good with where I am. I'm good with who I'm with. And I'm good with what I'm doing. And then tomorrow's another day, and I'm going to go and try it again. And someday maybe God will move me, or move this, or move that. But uh, as um, our friend Andy used to say, he used to say, you've got to learn how to bloom where you're planted. So many people are so worried about the next thing that they never have the opportunity to actually grow where they are. And that can become a real, a real problem. So what Paul is saying is, listen... If you would rightly prioritize Christ in your life, you would begin to see these other things that you're chasing after in, in, in a right way. Some of these things you'll just let go of. You'll say, I don't need those things anymore. That's not even important anymore. It's amazing to me. Um, I've been a Christian now for almost 35 years. It's amazing to me uh, what was important to me 32, 33 years ago. I, I have no concern with now. Not because I'm too old to want them. <laughs> That's not it. It's because I, I have, my, my faith has matured at least enough to be able to say, I can let that go. I don't need that anymore. And there's great freedom in that. There's tremendous freedom in that. So Paul says there are priorities here. Your priorities are mixed up. And then Paul continues into chapter 4. But now he adds a new wrinkle in chapter 4. Apparently... This, the, so we have all these divisions, all right? But now Paul brings up a, a new part of that division problem. Apparently, in this conversation about who people were following, some of the people who didn't want to follow Paul were also criticizing Paul in a really bad way. So he starts to deal with that in chapter 4. I'm going to read the first five verses and then we'll... I'm not going to unpack it. We'll just kind of give you an introduction to what we'll look at next week. He says, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. So he's calling them out now because they've been judging him. Some of the leaders in Corinth have been judging him. 
In fact, I do, need, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, I do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And that's where we'll pick up and start next week. Thank you for being here. We'll see you on Sunday as well. Oh, maybe I should pray. <laughs> Father God, thank you again for your word and its truth. And thank you for Paul. What a great gift Paul has been to the church, uh, to your work, and to your kingdom. Uh, God, we thank you for his writings. We thank you that by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, this has been preserved for us. And let us just be people that would uh, seek to live under uh, the tutelage of your will and your wisdom. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, see you Sunday.